Life is about change. It's always day and night and winter and summer and everything's changing and yet people are sometimes afraid of change. Oh my God, what's going to happen? And do you ever feel like you are already on the perimeter of society? You know, like here's the mainstream and then you're, already, you're over here and then you do this program and you're... <laughs> And people have a desire to fit in, especially in America, melting pot, fit in. And uh, I'm telling you, if, if you think it through, if you're already at the perimeter, there's no way you're going to ever fit in. <laughs> you're going to be more on the outside, and it's okay to fit out. You know, the people who we, we love and are curious about are the people who don't fit in. They have their own life, and you want to know, what, what are they doing this week or this month? And you have an opportunity to be one of those people, a, a healthy, vibrant one of those people. The people, rather than, you know, with your neighbors, and you, you try to, like, pretend like you're your neighbors and fit in and things. And I just encourage you, because you will be changing a lot during this coming year in whatever way is comfortable for you. But you don't have to be in the closet about who you are. You don't have to fit in and try to be like them. It's fine to be like, you know, I'm into this health thing, and this is the future, and if you ever need anything, I'm here, and you can do that in your neighborhood, in your children's school, in your work environment. You want to be the go-to person for the change that is about to happen. You will feel better about it, and your career will thrive as a result of being visible. How many of you feel like you try to like stay not so visible about this because you've been attacked too much? What I'm asking you to do is make this leap from trying to maintain a low profile to maintain a high profile and say, you know, this is this is the future. And uh, in spite of the oppression that you have gotten your whole life for being different, to have pride in who you are and what you're about because that will be what carries this ripple effect out uh, into the world. I think it's really, if you're conscious, so you have people who are to varying degrees conscious or unconscious. And so if you are conscious, then kind of the world is at your fingertips. And sometimes I do this demonstration where, um, you know, I can, human beings are the only species that can make up behavior. So I can, while this is being recorded, I can do something like that's a completely made up behavior that there no other animal, dog, cat, gorilla can do, where they just do invent behavior that they've never done before. In, in a moment, but you have to be conscious and aware to be able to do that. And the best way I found to do that, yes, you can meditate, and that is a very helpful tool, but if you meditate and you don't eat well, it only gets you so far. But if you eat well, then it changes your consciousness, changes your brain, changes your blood, changes your planet, changes everything. And then you can actually change your personality. It's like, oh, I'm going to choose to be extroverted. And like, whoa, what a great party this is. And we 
do, do you know what I'm saying? I'm sure you hear, you notice that you can shape shift. You can be like, oh, today I'm going to be this way. And people who do yoga, people who eat well, are far more malleable than the average population. But people don't realize they are because they live in a bubble of people who eat well and do yoga. So really, um, so really, when I started the school, one of the I tried to. I read so many books about health and nutrition and diet and transformation, and I thought to myself, I have to really teach something that's not in any of those books because if it's in all those books, then why would people do the course? They could just read those books. So I kind of like locked myself up in the woods in Western Massachusetts and be like, oh, what's what are all these books saying that they have in common, and what is it that I know that is not in any of those books? And one of the things that occurred to me was this idea that health is a vehicle and not a destination. So for a lot of people who are into eating healthy, they're trying to eat healthier and healthier and healthier and healthier and healthier and healthier and healthier. And there's a way that you can um, get too strict about eating healthy and then life isn't fun because like food is like love and emotion and family and you know a lot of people have done that we're at, we're at a holiday dinner and like no I can't eat that no or at the restaurant it's like does that have any of this and you know it, somehow all, everyone's attention focuses on that individual and uh I think the idea is that people think that if they can get to a place where they're eating perfectly healthy, then the whole rest of their life will just work out, which is completely not true. There are millions of people who just eat supermarket food or never even heard the term organic who are living happy lives and who are healthy. Maybe they would be happier or healthier if they eat well. I know a lot of people who eat very healthy, organic, and are miserable. So to think that there is necessarily a correlation between those two things is missing the point. Yes, there is correlation, but the goal isn't to get to be perfectly healthy. Most people who come to the school are already more healthy than 80-90% of people around because they have an awareness around food. So to me, the goal isn't really about getting from being the top 80th percentile of being healthy to the 85th percentile or the 86th percentile. Because yes, you may be healthier, but it doesn't mean that the whole rest of your circle of life is going to turn out better because you've decided to never eat sugar or never have gluten or... I, you know, I was talking to someone about a month ago, and he was telling me how he has no sweeteners in his life. And all I'm thinking is like, man, you need some sweetener in your life. And you know, he said, I got off all sweeteners. I don't even eat fruit. So that's a great example of like thinking to myself, wow, this guy needs a drink. So he got. It was almost like being um, like a monk. For food, and I don't think it really contributed to his health or his well-being or his happiness. So when I say that 
health is a vehicle, not the destination, if you're at the 86th percentile, and what the school is about is really less about getting to the 87th percentile, but to notice that in many ways the world around us is falling apart. So yeah, there's a lot of people who are at the 20th percentile and going downward. So you know, creating why the school has such a strong vocational component is because I wanted to invent a way for people to contribute to a better planet, not by pulling out their credit card and swap, swiping it, but by, you know, we spend more hours of every day in our career than anything else. So having a career where they can personally contribute to others' well-beings and to raise the lower part of the equation to be better. And then, by the way, what happens as a result of that is that our percentile here goes up anyway. But it doesn't go up because we're eating more strictly. It goes up because we're feeling fulfilled of contributing into the world and making the world a better place. So yes, we can do more every day by being healthy, by being fit. Um, but if it's all of that is just about me, 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 I'm going to get all about me, then uh, there is a way that that's like a dead-end street because uh, it can be very isolating. And so when it's a destination, it's a vehicle, then you're like, wow, I'm really healthy, I have good blood, I can think really clearly, I'm malleable. We live longer today than our parents and grandparents by far, but not nearly as long as people will live 20, 30, 40 years from now. So we have years and years and decades and decades to plot out a way to have a fulfilling life, much of which can be about contributing to the betterment of the planet. everyone, I'm Jenna from the Education Department. Coincidences are a funny thing, like how you ended up at IIN. We don't believe you're a student here by accident. And as you build your business, we want you to look at coincidences in a new way, becoming aware that they have meaning behind them. Psychologist Carl Jung coined a term for these meaningful coincidences. He called it synchronicity. For example, you're thinking about an old friend you haven't seen in years who lives far away and she calls out of the blue. Or you're looking for a job in finance and begin a conversation at the gym with a person who just happens to be a manager at a local bank, which leads to an invitation to submit your resume. Carl Jung experienced these coincidences often, but the idea didn't begin with him. The phenomenon has been referred to by many generations in ancient cultures, which attributed synchronicity to the works of the gods. The law of attraction also plays into the concept of synchronicity and the commonality between the two is alignment. When your energy is open and you're actively seeking something, be it a project, a luxury item, or even a client, then like attracts like. Your energy sends out ripples within the universe and that energy is matched and comes back to you. So what does synchronicity have to do with nutrition and health? Joshua's contribution to the synchronicity phenomenon is that eating healthy and pursuing balance in primary foods amplifies your experience with synchronicity. It's about attaining balance. You become more aligned when the mind, body, and soul are healthy and in sync. 
So by addressing primary and secondary foods with clients, they're able to become more in balance. And more balance encourages more synchronicity. You'll recognize it if you pay attention. So to increase your experience of synchronicity, first, seek balance, then set a clear intention, and keep track of the synchronicities that pop up. This applies to health coaching, too. You'll notice your clients experiencing the same issues you're working on. Joshua calls this the magic of mirroring because clients mirror your own life. You'll find yourself talking through an issue with a client and realizing you need to apply the same process to your own life. And as you develop your ability to notice synchronicity, you can begin to attract what you want in clients and in business. Now, we'll hear a discussion from Joshua on synchronicity. One of the most interesting things I came across in my uh, study and research of personal growth and development had to do with Carl Jung. And, uh, you know, he was a student of Sigmund Freud, and, but he broke away and had different ideas. And uh, The part of his work... You know, some of his work was about dreams and dream interpretation, and then another part was around synchronicity. Like, what is synchronicity, and how does synchronicity occur, and why is it that you're thinking about someone and they call you, or you have this precognition to know, sort of know what's going to happen in the future, and how does that whole thing work? I mean, how often does it happen for people that you, like, it's it just like, that's so weird. You know, I was just thinking about you, and then they show up. Anyone have that experience? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the nature of this phenomena is almost uh, not described anywhere. While there are many books about history or about fashion or about cars, in the area of uh, the occurrence of synchronicity, it's almost like it's so invisible to people that there's not much literature about it. It's kind of like fish. Fish don't really realize they live in water. Because all there is is water. So, you know, like the, I have a little pond and the frog, all the frog knows is the pond. And so I think, I sort of think that we're in synchronicity to such a great extent, and especially now because people are so busy eight days a week, that we sort of realize it's happening, but there's not that much talk about it. The, the most talk I ever saw was in the Celestine Prophecy, which was a really relatively poorly written book. <laughs> but because it addressed this topic, it became an immense bestseller. People just were like, oh my god, what is this? And so the part of Sigmund Freud that talks about synchronicity became uh, a big curiosity for me, especially because I was traveling in Australia and you know you have to take books with you to read but you don't want to take a lot because they're the heaviest thing in your and so I was I, but I took this book because that's what I was studying at the time and I was walking down this hall and this woman was like passing me by and she had the same book as me and so I had I was like duh like I'm supposed to talk to this person and uh so, what he did was use the I Ching, which is similar to tarot, where the card that you turn up in the moment is descriptive of the moment, and it's a non-random occurrence that that card came up, even though someone outsider would say it's a random occurrence. So, do you get a sense like this Carl Jung guy was a deep person? 
that's the main point I wanted to convey at this time because I, synchronicity reflects in our curriculum sometimes through the magic of mirroring or sometimes by attracting a niche market um, and I guess also by just trusting that you know God and the universe is always leading you to be at the right place at the right time my addition to the synchronicity thing would have to be that people who are living life in balance you know with respect to the laws of nature with respect to eating you know yin yang tend to be more often in the right place at the right time and people who are out of balance more often tend to be at exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time uh, through my experiences in india there's a lot of, it's a lot of talk about what Alfred Einstein calls the myth of individuality, that there really is no me, that it's an illusion, but you think there's a you because since you were this big, people gave you a name and gave you, uh, described you and interacted with you based on your gender and you know, focused you on the religion and the nationality, and so you are sure that there's a you because everyone calls you you. But uh, according to many Eastern traditions and what Albert Einstein was really into figuring out was that we're all basically like stardust and we have taken the shape and form but it's not really different you know when you look at a cluster of ants and you don't see there oh there's Joe and there's Jimmy and there's Susie they're just friggin ants and but to the ant they're like oh there's me and my feelings are really important or at least humans are that way and so we have all talked ourselves ourselves into this so if you 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 with me so far so if you use I think about this a lot because if there is no me then who am I and what's the point and you know all that so with the idea that you're in the right place at the right time is interlinked with that is that all the planets are always in the right place at the right time you know, the Earth has its orbit, and the comets have their thing, and the seasons always change, you know, on the equinox. You know, there hasn't been a time when spring happened like, oh, it's like two months late. <laughs> Sometimes winter comes late, but it's part of bigger cycles, and certainly now it's all changing. But there is a way that by living in balance, just like the rest of the universe is always in the right place at the right time. So too, by reducing willfulness, we can have ourselves be at the right place at the right time by noticing the signs and signals that are occurring around us. You know that thing like when you get a whack on the side of the head? It's like, well, what's my lesson here? I've got it. And they're just basically uh, boundaries that helps us to triangulate the future that we want to create for ourselves. So again, my contribution to the whole synchronicity thing is that the more we eat in balance and live in balance, the more often you're in the right place at the right time, which accelerates and amplifies synchronicity. So I would suppose that then what you could take from that is that during this year and in the future, your level of synchronicity will only go up which makes life a lot easier because then you can trust when you're meeting someone oh what's what, what is, it's not it's not a random occurrence 
and you can learn through that process. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. My intention here today is just to share with you, to connect with you, to share a little bit of my story and to explore this question, can we really have it all? And what does having it all mean? How many of you want to have it all? Yeah, but how many of you want to have it all by your definition and not some external societal standards of what having it all means, right? Okay, so I, I definitely want to have it all too, and in a lot of ways I feel like we have it all right now. When I was in Costa Rica, I was talking to some of the locals there, and I asked a gentleman, he's about 40 years old, and I said, what do you think the purpose of your life is? He said, to live my life. And he looked at me like I was crazy for even asking. Like, what do you mean, what's the purpose of my life? The purpose is to live. And I think, in America especially, we get a little addicted to those external things. We live in when then. You know, when I get this great job, then I'll be happy. Or when I find my soulmate, whatever that is, then I'll be happy. And when this and when that. And if we just lived in the now, we'd realize we really do have it all. And to really create the life we want, to create our own definition of having it all, we have to get outside of this little box called our comfort zone. You all know this box very, 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 very well. It's very familiar to you. And it's where you have that thing called control. Don't we just love control? But you know what? Control is a complete illusion. Like, really, we have no control whatsoever. We think we do. Our ego likes to think we do. But we have absolutely no control. We do have choice. But when we don't know what's going to happen, the unknown is petrifying. So we like to stay inside our little comfort zone. And we'll occasionally step out of our comfort zone if we've made a good pro-con list and we've really weighed it out and kind of we know what's happening. Then we'll occasionally step out and we're like, oh yeah, like I'm really moving. But it's those times when we just bust right out of it that we really learn who we are. And sometimes we do that by choice. And sometimes we're busted out of it. How many of you have ever been busted out of your comfort zone? You didn't see it coming. Yeah, me too. So when I look at this question, what does having it all really mean? I want to share with you a little bit of my journey of how I attempted to answer that question. So my little pretty road to having it all. I have to take you back to fourth grade. Don't worry, we won't go all the way through my life. Because I am 85, so that would take a while. In fourth grade, a couple of girls started the I Hate Christine Club. I wish you would have been there. You could have been my friends. <laughs> and at that young age, I decided there was something desperately wrong with me. I had to be unlikable. And as I tell my story, I want you to consider events in your life where things happened and a belief system got cemented in place. It started becoming part of your story. So fourth grade, I'm unlikable. Something's wrong with me. And whenever something like that happens, we have to come up with what I call a compensatory strategy. Remember this word, compensatory strategy. I'm going to come back to it. And our compensatory strategy is what we develop to compensate for what we feel we lack. Because all human beings have some core misunderstandings. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm unlovable. I'm not deserving. And there are things in our life that create these core misunderstandings based on our circumstances. Mine was the I Hate Christine Club. And that was enough. 
And then it kind of continued. I, my arms and my legs grew before the rest of my body, so I got the nickname Monkey Girl. I had, <laughs> I had uh, glasses in fourth grade. I had two mouth appliances before braces, acne, and I was a super late bloomer, like 17 super late bloomer. And my compensatory strategy was that if no one's going to like me, I just have to be the smartest girl in the room. So I was also the good student. So I was a bullseye. I got locked in lockers. I got, you know, boys would only be nice to me to cheat off my papers. It was just not a good time for me in, in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And so I became addicted to doing, addicted to achieving. I had to get straight A's. If I got anything below an A, it was like my life was over. Because my whole identity became about results, became about achievement. That was how I compensated for my vast insecurities. I became addicted to achieving. Any overachievers, recovering achievement addicts out there? Yeah, it's like, if, if only I do this, if only I get this, then I'll finally feel better about myself. So the insecurity continued. I thought I could go, I grew up in Dallas. I thought I could go far away to college. I went to Northwestern in Chicago and reinvent myself. But what I discovered is that insecurities like come with you no matter where, where you go. So I get to Northwestern and the same compensatory strategy drives me there. Double major, graduated in three, three and a half years, internship job, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, what am I gonna do with my life? Because I really needed to be somebody. You know, every insecure person wants to be somebody, to like prove to the world that they are somebody because we aren't connected to ourselves. So I went to the place where all insecure people go, Hollywood. Because <laughs> if you can make it there, New York's another great example. And I decided I was going to be somebody. And I didn't want to be an actress. Whoa, way too much rejection. Couldn't deal with that. So I decided to be a Hollywood agent. Anybody watch Entourage? You know, Ari? He, I had a boss like Ari. He would make me keep a refrigerator under my desk because he didn't like me to take breaks. He timed my bathroom breaks. I worked 12, 13, 14 hour days, but I was paying my dues. And because I was still trying to compensate, I was that overachiever, I was determined to be the youngest ever female Hollywood agent. And guess what? I was. So there I was at about 26 years old. I had the career, I had the lifestyle. I was making six figures by 25. I had the fancy business suits that I'd watch on, you know, the girls on Melrose Place in their power suits, like that's what I dreamed about. I had the business cards, an assistant who sat outside my office and said my name. I even had dates with some recognizable people. So I remember thinking that night, still not really happy. I think I have a problem. Because no person, no amount of money, no job, no being the perfect size zero, whatever I was, was making me feel better about myself. Nothing was working. So I decided it had to be my job. So I decided to quit my job. I decided all I needed to do was just quit my job and I could move away from like this external having and all, I could just really be my all. But I hadn't really healed that insecurity inside of me. So even though I quit, I still was looking for something outside of me to complete me and fulfill me. So I had 11 jobs in three years. 
I did everything. I worked for a real estate company, a marketing company. I was in a hand, a hand model because in LA you can like be a body part model. I was a nutritionist. I was a health coach as well. I was a personal trainer. I did everything that I could possibly think of. And I really was, I felt very disenchanted because when I quit my job, I felt like I jumped out of that comfort zone. And I thought that whole leap of faith thing, that sounded really sexy to me. Like I thought you took a leap of faith and like you'd land on a fluffy cloud and the arms of the angels would be there to be like, wow, you did it. No, 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 no. There is a free fall <laughs> when you take a leap of faith. And you don't know how long it's going to be. And your ego, when that happens, it starts freaking out and looking for anything to grab onto. But the universe, God, higher power, whatever word you want to use, always has a better plan. You know, it's never our time. It's all in divine timing. So there I was looking for anything I could grab onto. So I didn't have a career. I started losing all my money. I was going into tons and tons and tons of debt because I was trying to keep up with my lifestyle. I ended up moving in with a guy that I wasn't engaged to. My mom did not like that. Got disowned for about eight months, separated from my family. I got diagnosed with an undiagnosable autoimmune disorder. You guys can all relate to this, going to doctor to doctor to doctor, and them saying, I don't know, something's wrong, we can't diagnose you, take this drug, this drug, this drug. They told me they didn't, they, I didn't know, they didn't know if I was gonna have children, all my hair was falling out. But I had one saving grace. I was in love, and I thought I'd met my soulmate. And he ended up proposing to me. And then six months before our wedding, we were in a premarital counseling session because we were of different faiths. And he walks in. I was eating a turkey sandwich. All, turkey sandwiches have never been the same for me since this moment. He walks in and he says, Christine, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. I don't want to marry you. I'm leaving today, and I never want to see you again because I think that's better. And he walks out. And that was the last time I saw him. So there I was at 27, 28-ish. No job. No money. Separated from my family totally unhealthy, and just thought I lost the love of my life. And I was laying on my bathroom floor, and P.S., ladies especially, why do we go to our bathroom floors? <laughs> like, why? They're disgusting. <sighs> but that's where we go, and I did it before Eat, Pray, Love came out. Like, I was on my bathroom floor, just laying there, and for the first time in my life, and let me just say, I'm sure people in this room have been through far worse than this story. But for me, in that moment, that was the lowest of the low. Because everything I clung to for security and control and safety, everything the ego loves, got stripped away. So I'm laying there on my bathroom floor, and for the first time, I think about how I could kill myself, how I could end my life. Because I just didn't know what to do. I was so depressed. I was so weak. Everything had broke down around me. And I was thinking about it, planning it, and then something happened that I can't really articulate in words, but I'll try. It was an overwhelming feeling of love. I call it my spiritual awakening. To me, it was the first time I really knew God as an adult, because I think we all know God when we're born. And I felt that this was happening for me. Even though it sucked, for lack of a better word, somewhere inside of me, like I heard the voice of my authentic self, not the voice of my ego, but 
but the voice of my intuition, the voice of my authentic self, my higher self saying, this is all happening for you. Trust and feel me. And this only lasted for a few moments because my mind quickly came in and was like, whoa, what's going on? What was that? This is weird. Right? Because <laughs> whenever we move into that place of love and expansiveness, the ego's like, wait, wait, hold on. This doesn't feel like I can control this. But it was enough. It was enough. And I went, oh, it's not out there. It's not out there. I have it backwards. So I got on my knees, and I, I, at the time I wasn't particularly spiritual, but I had been an agent, so I knew how to make deals. <laughs> so I got on my floor, and I'm like, okay, God, that seemed like that was you, and I really like that. And if I make my way through this, if I figure out my way through this, I will dedicate my life to helping other people please help me sleep. <laughs> so I went to bed that night. The next day I woke up with the idea for my first book. Never wanted to be an author, never wanted to be a spiritual coach, never wanted to be a speaker. Not even in my radar. But there it was, boom. And my first book, 20-something, 20 20-everything, 20 that came out in 2005, was what started this whole journey for me. And it was me sharing my story and me talking to lots of other people and me for the first time in my life be, being vulnerable. Not trying to be so freaking perfect, which is impossible. Not worrying what other people think, which is exhausting. And not being overly concerned with pleasing the world, which we can't do. And from that moment, I have dedicated my life to helping people really remember who they are. Because here's the thing, there's a lot out there about learning how to love yourself. You don't need to learn. You just need to remember. Because it's who we are. It's totally who we are. So my journey began through these questions, really, who am I, what do I want, and how do I get it? So this first, we, we usually start down at how do I get what I want. We don't spend much time up at the top about who am I really. And, and this isn't like a narcissistic question. This is really important because most of us have totally lost touch with who we are because we're so driven by our compensatory strategies. We're so driven by what we're trying to prove to the world or to ourselves. Because we all start out, like I said, as love. We all start, if you've seen a baby, you know this because they activate that inside of you. And then things happen. We hear things we see things, we experience things, people leave, people betray us, and we start forming a bunch of these beliefs. And I know, I know a huge part of you knows it's not true, but there's another part of you that is kind of worried that it is. And so this becomes part of our story. And unfortunately, this drives our definition of who we are. So when you think about who you are, what happens is it becomes a list of roles and interests. I'm a health coach, I'm a wife, I'm a father, I'm a daughter, I'm a New Yorker, whatever it is. But that's not who you are. That's not who you are at all. That's just an expression, just what you do. And I think as a culture, we've gotten way too obsessed with what we do. 
When I was in Costa Rica, do you know how many people asked me what I do? Zero. They don't care. Even the women on the retreat, the one woman at the end of the retreat said to me, she was like, this was so amazing. I don't know what any of these women do. And I was like, but I know who they are. And I feel connected to them. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't share our gifts with the world. I'll get to that. But a lot of us are building houses on really unsteady, shaky foundations because we don't have that core sense of who we are. So here's how you answer, who am I? I want you to think of something you love to do, that you just love to do, that time stops when you do it. And you're so fully, fully, fully present in that activity. Okay, so like for me, being here and connecting with you, I love it. I love it. But I want you to think about what qualities come out of you while you're doing that thing. We become too overly concerned with the form versus the essence. So for example, when I'm here talking to you, I'm loving, I'm creative, I'm expressive, I'm honest, I'm passionate, I'm giving, I'm excited. That's who I am. I'm not a speaker, author, coach. That's just the form. So as you're going out there and as you're building your businesses, I don't want you to think of what's the form going to look like. I want you to think of the qualities, the essence of you that makes you who you are. Because the more we're in that, the more we're in the essence of who we are, the form takes care of itself. People ask me how I build my business. I just keep like doing, growing, learning, doing what I love and showing up. And stuff comes in. It's not that hard. We make it a lot harder than it is. Because again, we're driven by that compensatory strategy. If I was still driven by results and achievement, oh my gosh, my career may look a little different. I may have more stuff, but I wouldn't be nearly as fulfilled. Not nearly as fulfilled. So when we move to that question, what do I want? We're all looking for a purpose. And I'm reminded again of what the gentleman said to me in Costa Rica. My purpose is to live life. And we forget about that. And what makes it even harder is that, this is one of my most profound quotes, that life is like the Cheesecake Factory. How many of you have been to the Cheesecake Factory? So you walk into the Cheesecake Factory, pretend you've never been there before, and you're handed a menu. And it's really not a menu. It's more of an encyclopedia of food, right? It has, has a spiral. It's really heavy. So you walk, and you sit down, and you're flipping through the menu, and you're like, oh, rocket shrimp. That looks good. Oh, chicken piccata. That looks kind of good. Then you're like, whoa, there's 21 pages. And there's 171 food choices, not including cheesecake. I have counted them, 171. And you're flipping through and flipping through, and then you just don't know. And so you ask everybody else at the table, what are you going to have? What are you going to have? What are you going to have? Have you been here before? What do you think I should have, right? And like, all of a sudden, it's not fun anymore because you've got to pick the right thing. Otherwise, dinner's going to be ruined. So then the waiter comes over, and the waiter's the authority figure who knows way more about you than you do, right? So, like, what do you think I should have? And he's like, oh, the chicken piccata. You're like, okay, the chicken piccata. And you give him the menu, and everybody's talking and chatting, but you're not listening because you're obsessing about whether or not you made the right choice about your freaking order. So then the 
food comes, right? Then what you want comes to you, what you think you want, and you're like, ugh. And you look at everybody else's, and clearly they've made much better choices. <laughs> and you're like, all right, I, I can't make a choice, whatever. Like, I chose the wrong thing. And this is what we do to ourselves with choices. Instead of just choosing something, moving forward, and then getting feedback from the universe as to whether or not it's in alignment or not, we analyze and rationalize and make lists and talk to people. Ah! <laughs> enough, 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 enough. Just choose, just choose, just choose. You can't make a wrong choice. You cannot fail. You choose and then you get feedback. You choose and then you get more feedback. But stop keeping yourself stuck. Too many of you let fear drive the car. And fear isn't the enemy either. If I waited until I wasn't scared about something before I did it, I wouldn't leave the house. I'd never do anything. Courage is feeling fear and moving forward anyway. So think about where is fear stopping you? Where are you hanging out in limbo, waiting for some sign from the universe before you take a step forward? You know, you know, you know, you know. Where there's doubt, it's a no. And when there's any excitement, it's a yes. So if you remember one thing from me today, it's don't let fear stop you. Just choose. There is no such thing as failure. No such thing as failure. Thank you. <laughs> Because 
So we, we only have a certain amount of real estate in our consciousness and our mind. And if a bunch of real estate is invested in other people and other people's issues and what other people think of us, do you think there's a lot of room for inspiration? Do you think there's a lot of room for intuition? If your mind is constantly worrying about the future and obsessing about the past and what about what other people think of me and what if, 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 divine guidance can't get in. It's sitting up there going, well, okay, when you stop worrying and you stop being so scared, like, I'm here. We've got to be present and choose and trust ourselves and be self-honoring for that to come in. I love it when things don't go according to people's plans. I get so excited because I know they're right on the brink of a huge transformation if they're willing to see it not through the lens of a victim. When things don't go like you plan or life throws you an unexpected curveball, if you're in that energy of a victim, you're just going to experience the same thing over and over and over and over, just different cast of characters. But if when things don't go your way, when you have an expectation hangover, when reality does not meet your expectations, that can create a lot of suffering if you perceive yourself as a victim, if you are someone who thinks the world happens to me. But if you're willing to be a student of your life rather than a victim, and you go, all right, what am I learning from this? Why is this happening for me? That's how you move through expectation hangovers. And what I learned about this whole question, what do I want? Sometimes it's a big process of elimination before we really step into it. We try a lot of different things, we have a lot of different experiences, and eventually we get more in alignment. So next time your expectations don't match your reality, instead of asking why, because we never really know, ask what am I learning? It will liberate you. Finally, moving on to this question, now how do I get it? First of all, there's no one way. The only thing I don't like about Facebook is that it's created a culture of comparison. Comparison? I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people and trying to measure up and thinking that our path or our career, our expression has to look like someone else's or we have to do it this way or, or if I just buy this online course, then like everything will be great. You know, and really there's no one way. The best way I know is to really follow your inner guidance. And in coaching, I've been coaching people since 2004, and I've noticed that people spend a lot more time avoiding what they don't want versus going after what they do. I call it the avoidance trap. We all have them. Mine in the past was rejection. Did not like rejection. It was totally my button, starting in fourth grade. And so I would spend, I would say that I wanted a fulfilling, inspiring, creative, abundant life. But because I was so petrified of rejection, I would do anything I could to avoid it. So I'd kind of sort of put myself out there because I didn't want to be rejected. So I want you to think of what's your avoidance trap? What do you spend time trying to avoid that's taking up, again, a lot of that real estate in your mind, in your energy, and in your time? Instead of being motivated and driven, can you be inspired? There's two ways to move forward in life. We can try to move away from what we don't want, that avoidance trap. That's like a pushing energy. It doesn't feel good to be pushed at all. 
or we can move toward what we want. That's where vision comes in. That's where inspiration comes in. That's when intuition guides us. And the path isn't always clear. But what I've learned is that if 